What a blessing it is to open God's word in safety and in dryness. Amen. We are very, very blessed in our county, and I think we all know that. Uh, when I began to plot out this sermon series um, and began to think about rebuilding, I had no idea that on, on this weekend we would see a large portion of our state uh, in, in destruction, in a place where rebuilding, physical rebuilding, and all of these things that we are talking about are taking place. And so it's very, very pertinent to the life that we live and the world that we live in. But also I think about so many other situations that I come across, people that I talk to who have had some sort of devastation in their lives and are in a time of rebuilding, a time of taking hold, a time of grasping what God wants and what God is, is having for them. So we're talking about a, a rebuilding time in the history of Israel. And really there are three of these times when, uh, when the Jewish people return. And this is uh, one of them, one of the very important times. We see in Exodus is one. We see this big migration. And then we see in this time at the end of the exile is another migration, not near as big. Uh, the exodus, uh, two million people uh, came uh, across the desert and wandered around for a long time before they finally got there. This was, uh, this was a smaller group. About 50,000 were in this group. And then we talked last week about how we live in an age now where the dispersion of the Jewish people has now returned, beginning in 1948, to the state of Israel. So this return was a 900-mile journey. Uh, on foot, uh, carrying the things that they could gather together, the most important things. And it happened because of these five elements that we talked about last weekend. We talked about a motivation, how God had stirred the heart of a guy named Cyrus. He claimed to be king of kings. We know he's not, uh, but he claimed to be king of kings. But suddenly he said, I, you can go. And, and there was a moment uh, in which the king issued a decree. It, it was a now you're free decree. And, and it was a moment. We, no one knew how long that would last because kings change their minds. Leaders change their minds all the time. Uh, but in that moment, they had to act. They needed money and the king gave them some money and then the people gave offerings. They, they had been uh, having a, a really pretty good economic time even though they were in exile. Then the manpower, about two-thirds of the people in that exile, decided to go and return. Um, and, and then we see the, the moment, actually a third, I, I have that wrong. It, it was only about a third, two-thirds stayed behind, um, about 80,000. And then the momentum, there was a momentum to get back into the towns, and we talked about that. But this first wave was about 40,000 plus some servants, so about 50,000 altogether. And the question was, where do we start? I mean, if you th think about that, Jerusalem was, was devastated. Uh, the, the town's not so much, and we'll talk about that uh, as we look at the scripture today. But Ezra uh, chapter 3 is where we are. And I'm going to, some of you will be really happy. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And it's just 13 verses, but, um, but it's great here uh, for us to hear what was going on. Uh, in the word of God. So let's give our attention to God's word. Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. 
Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josedak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God to the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord... And the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters. And food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians. To bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that, that, that had been from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now the second year after their coming to the house of, the, of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad. And the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites and sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far 
away. Now let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, that's a lot of shouting. That's a lot of praising. And there's a lot going on in here that we need to understand. And so speak to us, God, out of your word. Speak to us out of these moments, these decisions, these interactions. The things that we need to know. The things that we need to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Rebuilding is difficult. It's just really, really tough. And boy, do we ever have an illustration in our own state right now. I look at some of the pictures and I don't even know how to, how to begin. How do you even begin to get things to dry out a little bit so that you can do some of the work that's needed? And here after 48 years, uh, how do you weigh the needs and the concerns, the things that are, are, are going to have to take place in this place that, that is rubble? 50,000 who returned under Zerubbabel, they settled into their towns. So that's, that's away from Jerusalem, the towns in Judah that were all around. Jerusalem was in ruin, total ruin. It was absolutely destroyed. It was a testimony to the greatness of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Show you how big a guy I am. I'll show you how I can destroy. But they settled into the town. So they had some things they had to do there. You know, you've got to find water. You've got to make sure the wells are working. Uh, But for the most part, probably everything was there. They didn't destroy all those towns. And everything is made of stone in that part of the world. It doesn't fall down. It doesn't, you know, even begin to decay unless there's an earthquake. So they went into their towns. Now, there probably had been some insurgents who had come in and and occupied things. I mean, we might, I don't know what we would call them, squatters who had come in. Some of them may have been some of the Samaritans from the north, the mixed race people that were coming in. Uh, But the towns were likely intact uh, when they got there. But they still had to rebuild. They still had to get things going. And the big deal was Jerusalem itself and the temple. That's why they came. That was the motivation. And so they had to set some priorities. And that's really what this whole passage is about. To see what were the priorities? What did they do first? What were the things that they did? Why perhaps in that sort of order? And what can we learn from it? And we see that the first thing that they did was they gathered. They got together in unity. They gathered as one man in Jerusalem. That's a phrase you'll find in other parts of the Bible. But when you hear that in the Bible, it means they, they were together. They weren't arguing at each other. They weren't, you know, griping about who was going to be in charge and this and that. And who gets that and who gets something else. They were gathered as, as one man. It's an amazing phrase. And the thing we really don't want to miss is, is that rebuilding requires the strength of community And that community strength is found in unity. There has to be unity. And in fact, if we look in other parts of the Bible, we discover that the power of unity changed the world. Uh, If we look in uh, Acts chapter 4, the very beginning of, of the gospel movement, the gospel church, it says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. That same kind of unity, one in heart and mind. They weren't griping at each other. They weren't arguing about who, who, who's going to be first and who's going to be at the right hand, the left hand, or things like that. In this amazing sentence, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Wow. But they shared everything they had. That's amazing. To share in that sort of a way. 
Where did that come from? We, we see it in Colossians chapter 3. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There's a unity that comes in the love of Christ. And there at the very beginning, we call it the Acts Church. This miracle was happening. I don't think it means that they got all their stuff and threw it in a big pile and said, okay, some for you and here's some for you. But what it does mean is that if someone came in and they said, I have a terrible thing that happened, my roof fell in. They said, okay. And they began to fix it. And I don't know if you've noticed, that's an amazing thing. It actually happens in times of disaster like we're going through or anticipated disaster. You know, I'll have to tell you that the times I've gotten to know my neighbors the most is in hurricanes. And I remember like two or, two or three hurricanes ago, I was at Lowe's. It was the last place I could try to find some plywood to nail onto my house. And I was in Lowe's and I was standing there and this fellow came up and he was, I know he looked familiar. Oh yeah, he's one of my neighbors. I couldn't even remember his name. And he came up and, and uh, he said, how you doing? I said, well, getting ready. How about you? Yeah, getting ready. We're trying to see what's going on. He said, how are you going to get that to your house? I said, I don't know. I'm going to put it on top of our van and strap it on there. He said, oh, no, no. I've got my truck. And so we loaded it into his truck. And I got to know this neighbor a whole lot better as we, as we worked together. He said, can I help you put that up? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Have you seen that? The way that that works sometimes. And it's sometimes in the hard times that we find a connection. And we need connection. If we're going to rebuild, we need community. And you see, that goes against a lot of what we get in our culture. Our culture boasts of our rugged independence and self-reliance. And we tend to want to, I'm going to do it on my own. I can do it myself. And when you've been in exile and you're trying to rebuild, you discover, I'm going to need to connect. I'm going to need to have that community. And so we need the community of faith. We need church. And I would say, you know, we've seen that very much, the whole pandemic experience that people, they struggled with. Well, do I really need to go back to church? Because in some ways I haven't missed that. Yes, you need to come back to church. And some have rushed back to church. He said, I can't believe how much I need this. And I've got to get back. I've got to get the community. So we need to, that was their, that was their top priority. The very first thing that they did. And the thing we need to realize that is that the enemy wants us scattered. The enemy wants us at each other. The enemy wants us not communicating. Because the power of working together is so very strong. You know, Hebrews 10.25 says it so well. Let us not give up meeting together. Just couldn't be more clear. Don't give up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing. It's a habit. Meeting together is a habit. Uh, But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The day is approaching. And we all the more need to be together. You know, it's so interesting when I talk to people and I talk to folks that are, are visiting the church or coming and they're kind of looking around and I, I talk to them about, you know, are you new to the area? Have you, have you been here long? And some people say, yeah, I'm new to the area. How long have you, how long have you been here? And sometimes they'll say, oh, about three years. And, and now they're looking for a church. And I'm so glad they're looking for a church because you need, you need to connect. 
Others I talk to, and, and I'll say, you know, are you new? Yeah, we're new to the area. When did you move here? This week. First thing on their list. In fact, I talk to people and they say exactly why. The first place I need to find is my community of faith. It doesn't really matter where I live. I'll find a place to live. But I need to find a place where I'm going to worship. I need to find a place where I'm going to be connected. Where I'm going to have connections with the community. So they established this community thing. And then next, the second priority was they set the altar in place. Now you might think, well, why wasn't that first? They should have set the altar in place. It didn't work that way. It's just not the way they did it. They said, we've got to get together and we've got to, we've got to know that we're united or a lot of this isn't going to matter all that much. So that was the second priority. Should it have been first? Truth is, you won't get much done without the unity of community. And this was literally the place of sacrifice. Before there were walls, before there were buildings, before there were the courtyards, the court of this and the court of that, they needed the place of sacrifice. It's the place where we bow before the Lord. And setting the altar in place made a declaration. Who are you going to worship? And it says in a little bit, we'll talk about, they had some fears. There are people creeping around out there and said, we got to show them that we are committed to our God. And we're also saying, you know, to whom are we going to sacrifice Uh, Where are we going to do that? So I would ask this question, you know, especially if you're in kind of a rebuilding mode of some part of some uh, part. What is the altar of your life? I mean, it's a good question for all of us because you have one. You have an altar. You might say, well, I don't have an altar. I mean, I talk to people. They say, I don't believe in God. Well, you do. You believe you're you're God or something like that. But your altar is the place that you bow. It's the place that you sacrifice. It's the place where you get your identity and your direction and your strength. And everyone has an altar. Your altar uh, is where you give yourself. You give your devotion. You give your passion, your resources, your energy. It's the, thing, it's the, it's the call that you'll always take. doesn't matter who you're talking to. But, is it God that you'll always take God? Is God above everything? And so everyone has an altar. And for some, it's their workplace, their business, their job, their career. Others, I've talked to them and they said, well, it's, it's my family. I, I, I will sacrifice everything for my kids. That's not scriptural. Did you know that? It's not scriptural. God is number one. And, and, and children are a temporary assignment. You get them for a while. And actually, they don't belong to you. They're sort of on loan to you. They're in, well, they're in your stewardship. They're in your care. They belong to God. And actually, the best way to bless your kids is to be faithful in worshiping God and to establish an altar, what we would call a family altar, an altar of the home. And if we put any of these things in the place of God, we are committing idolatry. I mean, the Bible talks about a lot. It's what God... The, the people of Israel in so much trouble was they, they had idols, sometimes health and, and sometimes uh, to get better, uh, better crops and things like that. But family is, is placed in our care for protection and guidance. It's not an object of worship. And I, I've talked to some people that they really worshiped the kids. I, I, I remember I talked to someone one time and they said, oh, I tithe. Next part. I tithe to my kids. That's not a tithe. 
that that's good that you that you support your kids and you care for your kids and all that sort of thing but that's not a tithe so you're worshiping in a in a wrong direction and so we, we want to make sure that we really understand that for some it's the altar of self they say i won't let anything get in my way and it's a worship of self and there's a lot of that in our world today and even a lot of that in our christian world today You see, the truth is, uh, we are called to make the Lord our altar. The Lord is our focus. Deuteronomy 6, 4 uh, and 5 and 6, it's the the most precious text in Judaism. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel is the, hear, listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the truth. That's the truth, the central truth of the Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Put this on your heart. It's the text that they nail on their doorposts. They strap sometimes to their heads and wrap around their arms uh, to make sure. And they talk with their children coming and going. So it's so very important. We're making a family altar. We're making this place. The third priority is that they set aside their fear. And it kind of sneaks past us if we're reading fast. But in verse 3 it says, For fear was on them because of the people of the land. And it didn't stop them. They didn't say, I don't know if we should set up this altar. Uh, We probably better not. You see those people creeping around over here? How many of you know there's a lot of fears that can get on us? People of the lands were watching, and, and uh, they had taken anything they're pleased uh, for a long time. This was actually their salvage yard. All this rock, they had been pulling rock out of there for 48 years to build stuff back in their towns. It's a really, really good place to get stuff. And so they, you know, all this was going on. But Scripture commands us not to be dominated by fear. I mean, there's so many places over and over. How many times? Fear not. It's like 365 times in the Bible. Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? This isn't a suggestion. I would suggest that you not be fearful. No. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In times of rebuilding, we can. there are all these fears that start coming in on us. And we're not... To give in to those. Isaiah 41. Uh, Fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. The fourth priority was to stop. And have a holiday. <laughs> I, I mean we don't. We read it. We're not as familiar with these things. But they observed the feast of booths. It's also called the feast of tabernacles. It's also called Sukkot. Uh, it's one of the appointed feasts of the Lord. So they stopped and had a holiday. And, you know, I remember when I was growing up, I had a lot of Jewish friends. And I was very envious. They had a lot of holidays. I mean, they just had a lot of really cool things going on. But there are three fall feasts that are held in the seventh month, which is called Tishri. Say Tishri. Tishri, okay. A little bit of Hebrew, all right. And we're right in the middle of it. We're right in the middle of them right now. Started last week. The first is the Feast of Trumpets. That's on the first day of, of, uh, of the uh, month of Tishri, which was uh, September 25th, and it's observed through the 27th. It's the new year, uh, that, and 
it's called Rosh Hashanah. Say that with me, Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah means head of the year or the first of the year. It's their new year. And it celebrates the hope of Messiah at the new year. The second is the Day of Atonement. That's on the 10th day that we call that Yom Kippur. It's a confession of sin. Uh, it's a time of atonement. That's, Octo- that's this week, October 4th and 5th. And then the Feast of Tabernacles is on days 15 through 21. That's the one they're talking about here. Sukkot. And it's one that's commanded October 9th through the 16th. You know which ones are commanded? Passover, Pentecost, and then uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkot or booths is a lot like Thanksgiving. It's this very different spin on it, though. It's a feast that calls families to live for a week in a makeshift structure. Let's, kids, we're going to live in a hut. Come on, get excited about it. We're going to build a hut. It's going to, well, it's kind of like camping. Fortunately, it's in the fall. <laughs> I've been in Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles, and it can be really hot. It's not so hot in Jerusalem, but it can be really, really hot even in October. It's September, October is, is when these things happen. But it's giving thanks for the provision of God. He provided for us when we were in the desert. Let's remember, kids, what it was it like when we came out of Israel and we were in the desert and we lived in huts and we had to depend upon God for water and food and manna every day. Let's remember what that was like. How would we do that today? We would say, okay, we're going to walk through the snow two ways to school. Okay, back and forth. Something like that. Let's remember how hard it was back in the day. And actually, it's very joyful. If you go to Jerusalem, you know, uh, this next couple of weeks and you see these huts, these tabernacles are built. They're beautiful. They're, they're all around and they're built on the balconies. They'll build a, a, out on a balcony, this beautiful little uh, tabernacle. It's amazing. But it reminded everyone. So it was a Thanksgiving feast. More than just let's eat a lot and watch football. It was let's remember how good God is. And then they made offerings. When you're rebuilding, there's a temptation not to give to God. Not to give at all. Say, I need everything, I need everything that I can, uh, can hold on to. This is a time when you need to give the most. And, that, and they realize that. We need to be giving so they made offerings for the Feast of, of Tabernacles, and they made regular offerings and free will offerings, and, and they gave money for the building. They, they had a building fund. <laughs> Surprise. Deuteronomy 16 talks about these three required feasts, and listen to what it says. Uh, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. This is the place that he's chosen. Uh, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, uh, at the Feast of Weeks, that's the Pentecost, and at the Feast of Booths, those three times. By the way, we know Jesus, he, he went to Jerusalem three times a year because he had to. I mean, that's just what you had to do as a Jewish, as a Jewish man. And listen to this. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So part of worship, part of coming and worshiping is to not appear empty-handed. Sometimes I talk to people and they say, well, I just can't give. You know, there's anything. You know, you really aren't worshiping unless you come with something. Jesus talked about the widow's might. And there's always something. There's always something to give. And you'll be amazed at how God responds when we begin to give, even out of our very small amount that we have. 
First Chronicles 16 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in his splendor. You know, one of the basic words for worship is just simply to give and make sacrifice. That's what it means. So if you don't bring anything, you really aren't worshiping. And then the sixth priority is to lay the foundation. Now, it's very interesting here because as I, as I listen to it, they're getting all this material together. They're laying a physical, they're building, they're doing a building project. And then they're singing and they're blowing trumpets and they're shouting and they're worshiping. So was this a foundation, a physical foundation, or was this a foundation of praise? And the answer is yes. It was both. It's all, it's all right there. It's in the scripture all woven together. Builders were laying the foundation of the temple. They played their instruments and sang responsively. They were singing back and forth. They, I don't know how all that worked. They praised the Lord, giving thanks. They had come through this great disaster, this 48-year disaster. And, and the altar now had been restored. And now the beginnings of the temple were being put in place. Uh, and this was their foundation of praise. We need a foundation of praise. If you are rebuilding in your life, no matter what's happened, if you're rebuilding in your life, you need a foundation of praise. And so it's not just about showing up. It's about, it's about opening our, our voices and our hearts to him. And what did they sing? They declared his goodness. I love this. Here, here's the song, the words to the song. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. There's two things there in that, just that little phrase. He is good is the Hebrew word tob. Say that with me, tob. And tob means, get this, beautiful, best, better, bountiful, fine, gracious, joyful, and kind. He is beautiful, best, better, bountiful, fine, gracious, joyful, kind. That's who he is, who he is. He is good. We sing a song like that, don't we? He is good. But then his steadfast love endures forever. That's what he does. It's this marvelous word, chesed. You have to kind of clear your throat when you say it, okay? If you're going to say it properly, chesed. And it's loving kindness, steadfast love. It's what he does. So he is good, so he does this steadfast love, this loving kindness toward us. And then the last one. The last one is that the sounds of joy overcame the sounds of sorrow. It's really kind of a difficult passage, difficult uh, to read, and it's difficult to study. Uh, it says that many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's households, the old men had seen the first house, and with a loud voice, they, they saw it being laid. Uh, many were shouting for joy, uh, but many of them uh, were weeping. They were sad. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. And it was heard far away. And the way it's written, it talks about them shouting for joy at the top of their voices. Think about that. Where do you experience that? At a football game is about the only place that where it's so loud, there's a roar. And it was drowning out the sadness of that moment. So the younger returnees were really loud. There you go. Sometimes people say, those young people, they're so loud. They sing really loud. Their band is really loud. It's what they're supposed to be doing, actually. <laughs> I mean, according to, to the scripture, that's what they're doing. They're singing really loud. 
And building back boulder is, is not about recapturing something from the past or grieving something from the past or saying it's not as good as it used to be. I remember the good old days and well, maybe we'll get the things. No, it's a rejoicing that points toward the future. And we, we always need to hear that message. It's a rejoicing in the goodness of God to bring us to this day. You know, in a few more chapters, we're going to get into the Nehemiah part of the story. And there's a fabulous verse there that probably you know. Nehemiah declares, do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord. And that's not something you stir up, you muster up, or you just say, I'm going to put on a happy face. This is the joy of the Lord. And sometimes it's with tears running down our faces. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. We're going to get into that. It's so very powerful. So building back Boulder calls for these priorities. Listen to him again, to connect with community in unity, to establish the altar of your family. What does your family bow to? Is there a bunch of things out there, or, you know, political groups or whatever you read on some? No, I'm going to bow to the Lord, my God, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Set aside the fears that attack you. They're going to come. Remember the goodness of the Lord to provide. He, uh, you know, I love that song that says, is he going to abandon us? He won't. He won't. He won't. We've been singing that. He is going to establish us. Remember the goodness of the Lord to provide for us. Make offerings to the Lord, even if whatever, small offerings. God sees that. Set the foundation of worship in your life and claim the joy of the Lord as our strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we live in a world and in a time that has a lot of rebuilding going on. People need to hear your gospel. They need to hear your word. They need to hear the pathway to rebuilding with you. The power of that. God, I pray that we might bring that message into our world. That we might bring that heart into the places where we work and where we serve and into our neighborhoods. Help us in these days that are ahead to know how to respond uh, to needs that are nearby and those that are far away. And Lord, as we, as we may be rebuilding in our own lives, help us to set the priorities. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to receive the Lord's Supper which is a remembrance. It's a way that, in much the same way uh, that long ago, they said, we have to remember how good God is. His love endures forever. His loving kindness is with us. We have to remember the times that he brought us through, brought us through the desert. He brought our people through. He's going to do it again. He's going to do those things again. And so we remember what Jesus did for us. We remember how much he's given for us. If you need the elements for communion, if you'll raise your hand wherever you are, Paul's waiting, okay? Anyone else? And down here, anybody else that needs the elements for communion?
On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done, that you have brought us to this day. And in gratitude, we say you are good. You are good. And we thank you for your loving kindness that is extended to us again and again. We thank you for your grace poured out so that we might walk with you in eternity. God, we thank you and we remember that great price paid for us. Bless us in this time of remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen.